15th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Adrija Ghosh from Project 39A, an organization that conducts interdisciplinary research on a range of issues dealing with the criminal justice system. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Lubhiti Rangarajan, who is a lawyer and the editor databases of the Decade of Darkness, Article 14's Sedition Database Project, which has made data on all cases registered over the last decade under Section 124A of the Indian Penal Code publicly available. This is the first independent database to track and analyze the use of Section 124A dealing with the offense of sedition. Sedition is defined as speech that brings into hatred or contempt or excites disaffection against the government and is punishable with imprisonment up to three years to a life term and fine. Article 14's database shows that more than 800 sedition cases were filed against 13,000 Indians since 2010. These include politically motivated cases, as well as cases against ordinary people for everyday activities. Of the 126 people for whom trials have concluded, 98 were acquitted of all charges, 13 were acquitted of only the charge of sedition, and 13 were convicted, rendering the conviction rate as low as 0.1%. Thank you so much, Lubyati, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. To start, could you please give our listeners a brief overview of what transpired at the Supreme Court before the interim directions were issued on 11th of May? What happened on the 11th of May was that the Supreme Court, uh, in an order, in a batch of writ petitions that were filed challenging the constitutionality of sedition, uh, said a number of things. Uh, One, it said that it hopes and expects that the central and state government will refrain from registering FIRs invoking sedition charges. It also said that all pending sedition trials, charges, investigation, uh, that is into charges framed, would also be kept in abeyance. This assumes that this is at the sort of charge framing stage onwards, that these proceedings would be now kept in abeyance because, and this is where things are a little complicated, the center filed an affidavit saying they would reconsider, review the law on sedition. And the center said this in light of the fact that the the prime minister believes that because we're celebrating Azadi Kamrit Mahotsav, which is 75 years of independence, it is time for us to shed colonial baggage. Um, and the center also said that therefore it is time to reconsider the law on sedition. So this is really what transpired at the court. And it remains to be seen really uh, what happens in the next date of hearing, which is the third week of July. But what appears to be the case at the moment is that the language of the court also is interesting here, where they say they hope and expect that the government won't register FIRs. And even if they do that, then the aggrieved parties can approach the court for relief. But what's what's interesting, as I said, is the language, and they did not direct 
or order the government not to register FIRs they maybe hoped and expected. So that was a little bit discouraging. Could you give us a sense of what was the government's initial position and how their affidavit was slightly different from what they took as an initial position before the court and the hearings? So the week uh, starting 5th of May has been interesting. I mean, there were you know, and there were multiple adjournments before that. Uh, the Solicitor General sought time to file affidavits uh, on on other dates of listing. But what happened after the 5th of May was there were, the Attorney General submitted that Kedarnath Singh is good law, that sedition doesn't need to go. The Solicitor General also in his written submission said that, you know, almost the same thing. Um, but that if the matter were to be decided, it should be referred to a larger bench. Uh, the petitioners in the meanwhile, the lead petitioner in the case, initially argued that the matter not be referred to the to a larger bench because uh, legally that was not required. But the manner in which perhaps the government responded also caused the petitioners to argue that, you know, this is something we are prepared for final arguments and we can certainly argue on the referral point should this matter be referred to a higher, uh, to a seven-judge bench. But you know, on the on the 9th of May, the Solicitor General placed an affidavit by uh, the Ministry of Home Affairs, which said essentially that the center was now reconsidering or reviewing the law. However, there were many unanswered questions in that affidavit, such as what is the forum before which they will reconsider? What is the process of this reconsideration? Are they going to solicit views from the public? How much time will it take for this reconsideration? None of these questions were answered in the affidavit, nor did the Supreme Court ask this of the Solicitor General in court. So it it's sort of, you know, it's it's a bit like reading between the lines. Uh, this entire week has really been uh, all of us trying to read between the lines. And I think what we're, the understanding now is that the court has accepted that this is an executive mandate to reconsider sedition. Instead of saying, all right, we will argue on the point of a seven-judge bench uh, referral and then decide whether we're going to proceed with final hearing. Instead, it has now deferred to, to the executive and said, all right, since the executive wants to reconsider the law, we will give it that time. And this is what is... Um, has been actually quite disappointing when you have extremely solid grounds on which sedition can be argued. Ultimately, if it is set aside by the court or not is, is again a matter for the court to decide. But we could have at least argued that sedition should go, that it doesn't deserve to be there in this democracy anymore. And and this is this is what is ultimately... Uh, this week has been discouraging on that count that the court had an opportunity to review this judgment, uh, sorry, review this law. And instead it deferred to some sort of executive uh, desire to, to review the law. Again, extremely vague affidavit, no explanations were provided by the government on what that means. So it sort of to be honest, leaves us all hanging in the balance. And as you expressed concerns about the impact of the interim directions, because the language is so vague, there's been a lot of debate as to whether the court has taken a stance or whether it hasn't. And in your view, you'd say that it's 
still to be seen what the actual effect is. So would you say there is a chance that it's not properly in- implemented and it goes the way that things have gone with Section 66A of the IT Act, which has been invoked even after being struck down by the Supreme Court? Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the problems we always see with Supreme Court judgments, you know, historically, has been its implementation. And 66A is a great example of that, that the provision was struck down entirely uh, as being unconstitutional. And there were still FIRs being filed despite that. I mean, here we're talking about an interim sort of measure by the court saying, you know, they hope that no new FIRs will be registered and that all pending sedition trials will also be kept in abeyance. Now, this order will have to be communicated, not just to police stations, but also to district courts, to magistrates, uh, to high courts. This is also something of monumental proportion, just the element of having to communicate this to every one of these bodies. The next date of hearing is July. So one would hope that the order is communicated immediately to state governments, to police departments, to high courts, to lower courts. And this is on the center. The onus is on the central government to do this. Now, again, you know, this this is where this is where orders like this are also um, difficult uh, to understand, especially when the language of the court that's used is also confusing, the hope and expect language. So, again, you know, it's it seems like the burden will be on the petitioners or the accused to once again approach court if something happens, which is, again, it's unfair. But it is to be expected. Right. And... Coming back to, again, what happened before the court, it seems that all parties before the Supreme Court have sort of agreed that the law is being widely misused. Even the center originally adopted the position that the law is being misused and it can be fixed through guidelines. But that the misuse in itself is not a ground for constitutional challenge. Could you give us a sense of how you think the law is being misused based on what you've encountered during your empirical and investigative research on sedition and also whether you think the any guidelines can uh, solve the problem i mean yeah there's there's a lot to unpack uh, in that question you know one is of course uh, the term misuse of sedition which i have personally been thinking about uh, which is that it assumes then that there is a correct way to use sedition but leaving that aside for a moment i mean if we talk about how sedition has been used, and this is what our uh, work at Article 14 has has uh, demonstrated. But you know, a few instances of this use. For example, in one case in Karnataka, this was in the aftermath of the Pulwama attacks in 2019, and there were six people who were arrested on sedition charges for liking a Facebook post that said, "I stand with the Pakistan Army." Now. You know, originally we uh, uh, got the bail orders from the eCourts website. All six orders are actually identical in their content, barring the cause title, uh, which is the names of the accused. So we sort of also assume that these are people, perhaps they were on the same WhatsApp group or the same Facebook group. And, you know, they were sort of uh, together when they clicked that post. Um 
And it's only when our investigating reporter went to the field that he found out that there were actually six different people in six different districts who were then uh, picked up by the police for liking this post. Now, the the you know, there are many things going on here. One, who are these accused? One of them was actually a shepherd. One of them was a chicken shop owner. One of them owned a pan and BD stall. What was common among all of them also was that they were all digitally illiterate. They did not, uh, you know, they did not understand what they were clicking on. Uh, they thought it was actually supporting, uh, you know, the Indian Army. They didn't realize it wasn't supporting the Indian Army. Uh, and we're not getting into, of course, whether, you you know, uh, who you support is also now considered seditious, of course. Um, but there are, you know, a, a lot of things uh, sort of, happened after they clicked the post. One is also that the police came in about half an hour later uh, after clicking the post, because again, these are all men who in their own districts or in their own villages are also on village WhatsApp groups. And so screenshots were taken off their Facebook posts and sort of traveled and found their way into the police stations, uh, you know, mobile phone, I suppose. Now, you know, it's stories like this that sort of make you wonder whether sedition, you know, whether a shepherd who studied up to third standard, who who just happened to like something on Facebook, is really overthrowing the government. And this is just one instance in a long line of instances. And in fact, Uttar Pradesh and Karnataka have the highest number of sedition cases based on social media posts, uh, all of which involve people who are, you know, rural first-time social media users who use, uh, you know, these apps that have been installed on their phone by their local mobile shop owner, who are also on local village WhatsApp groups where, you know, there may be sort of hyper-local political functionaries on those groups. So there is, you know, there's a lot of hyper-local politics that dictates whether or not a sedition case is also filed. Um, and this only contributes to the idea that yes, sedition is being misused. That there is, there are no checks, there are no guidelines uh, on the police. And to your the second part of your question, which is, can there ever be guidelines to regulate the use of sedition? I don't believe there can be guidelines to regulate sedition primarily because of the evidence we've discovered, again, through our investigative uh, reporting. Uh, for example, again, in UP, there was, you know, a 36-year-old Muslim electrician, and again, here the religion is important, who, uh, again, happened to like or share or click on a post that allegedly insulted the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh. What then happened was that he was immediately taken to the police station. Activists of the Hindu Yuva Vahini were outside the police station. One of the activists sat with the police officer and dictated the charges that were to be put in the FIR, which included sedition. Later on, the police did drop the section because they felt that it may not be the right section. However, Firoz, who was the electrician in question, continued to be in prison on other charges as well. You know, this sort of, um, these sorts of stories that you hear from the ground 
only contribute to the idea that um, the law, uh, which is 124A here, cannot be excluded from the real politic, certainly not in our present climate. This is something, of course, that, you know, may be hard to convey before the judiciary. But the truth is that, and as, as our data tells you, for example, that there's been an annual 28% increase in the number of sedition cases filed since 2014, which is since the BJP came into power. I mean, these sorts of numbers or this kind of rise is hard to ignore um, when you correlate it with who is ultimately in power, which political party is in power. And so any discussion around sedition is certainly around, say, uh, you know, a court-led guideline or an, even an executive-led guideline. It, it misses the point, which is that you cannot, um, you know, you cannot use sedition in a politically neutral or non-partisan way simply because the language of the law is worded such that if you are quote-unquote disloyal to government established by law, you can be arrested and charged and imprisoned for being seditious. So, you know, to kind of um, tiptoe around the fact that there are there can be guidelines that are neutral, there can be checks. Uh, you know, for example, uh, earlier this week, uh, you know, the Solicitor General brought up the fact that a superintendent of police could be the acting authority. Now, the police is also part of the executive. Uh, to imagine that a police, and again, you know, our, our data also uh, tells you that the rise in the number of Hindu right-wing groups that file cases or that pressure the police to file cases is also um, has also seen a spike after 2014. So, I mean, to imagine that there can be a neutral arbiter who decides whether or not an FIR can be filed in a case of sedition that directly threatens the government established by law, I think is, is quite far-fetched. To go back to what you mentioned that you're not really sure if sedition can ever be legitimately or correctly used in a constitutional democracy and what you said about how it can easily be molded and used for political purposes and with changes in political power, anyone can use it in any manner that they want to. Why do you think that sedition can never be legitimately used? And second, then, is this vagueness of the law and overbreadth of the law, one of the constitutional grounds that you think that the law should be uh, challenged on? You know, um, I'll, I'll also, uh, you, you mentioned being used for political reasons, but I'll also point out one more thing before I answer your other questions, which is that in our work, we found a lot of cases uh, that we categorized as everyday. Uh, now, these were cases that were not filed against also against people who who criticized or dissented or you know who were say in the opposition these were cases filed against people for doing ordinary things uh, or living their ordinary lives for example uh, in one case for wearing a t-shirt that had the words pakistan cricket board inscribed on it in another case there were uh, seven 
boys, and I say boys because some of them were juveniles, who were arrested for dancing to a song whose lyrics were apparently uh, obje- objectionable uh, or considered seditious. Um, there was another case in which we found that, uh, uh, you know, it the, the trigger for the sedition case was actually a loud bike silencer, which sort of snowballed into a clash between two groups and uh, you know, a sedition case was filed against one of the, uh, you know, one of the people in that group. You know, all of these instances also tell you that, uh, of course, now now the fact that it's, you know, being weaponized uh, in a certain way by those in power, you know, at the center and the state level is one thing. But it's also important for us now to understand, given what we know, is that sedition is used not just against dissenters or critics, which is also the sort of uh, prototype of who we consider seditious or who has been considered seditious. We're also seeing a whole range of cases in which, you know, none of these elements are in place, um, which is what also makes the law that much scarier and that much harder to sort of define and limit or understand actually what is sedition and what isn't, which then brings me to the point of vagueness. And certainly, yes, and this is something, you know, we, we um, uh, the court in, say, Shreya Singhal used that as one of the grounds to strike down 66A, the same ground of vagueness, overbroad, arbitrary, subject to, you know, misuse by the police. Uh, sedition is in fact no different, except, of course, that it's graver it carries a social stigma that we have also encountered in our stories that it is reported as deshdro uh, you know in in many languages it is translated into deshdro and so the tag of being a deshdrohi or a traitor uh, is is one that is extremely extremely hard to shake off for the accused so you know all of this sort of put together it only tells you that fundamentally sedition is simply not compatible with a democracy because sedition implies that you are a traitor, you can be a traitor. And there can't be traitors in a democracy because a democracy is for the people, by the people. So, you know, it's it's impossible then to sort of... Uh, you know, define the limits of sedition, have guidelines around sedition, because fundamentally then you sort of, it, it then it implies that you agree that there can be traitors in democracy. You agree that the government can be overthrown by an attempt to incite disaffection. Again, none of these terms are defined. Um, you know, and we know now that Kedarnath Singh tried to limit the scope of sedition by saying incitement to violence, uh, you know, is the standard. But again, the, you know, this test was laid down in 1962, when otherwise, um, you know, 50, 60 years later. Uh, and in fact, as our data shows, so many of these cases don't involve violence. They don't even involve criticism. They don't even involve protesting. There is no excitement of disaffection. You know, in, in so many of these cases, they're just ordinary, uh, for instance, social media users who don't know what they're clicking. And the fact that you can even file an FIR against them uh, is is just very, very telling of executive behavior, of police power, of the realities of 
hyperlocal politics on the ground right and uh, you talk about the social stigma attached to a charge of sedition and in relation to that i i'd also like us to talk about how the process is the punishment we all know that sedition cases do not end in conviction as in there there's a really low conviction rate so could you just tell us a little about what it means to say that the process process is the punishment yes i mean that that is again a very very important facet of what happens after a sedition case is filed because we've spoken of how how sedition cases are triggered today or since 2014 and that back story is also important but what's also very important for us to understand is that after the sedition case is filed one of course there is the social stigma two we we interviewed about 60 people who accused of sedition in uh, uttar pradesh karnataka and assam almost unanimously each of these accused were from um you know a rural background a lower middle class background each of them has been and continues to be in debt to pay legal fees to pay you know bail bonds also the sort of you know other day to day expenses that come up when you are you know implicated in a criminal case that is you have to travel from your a uh, village to the district headquarters again for so many people this is an entire days work so many of them are either daily wage laborers or small time business owners and so they cannot afford to sort of you know travel to court to the police station to report uh you know for investigation or for other reasons so the criminal justice system also puts in place all of these measures um that are frankly very oppressive to people who don't even have the means to afford a lawyer um this is of course part of the reason why the process the punishment in addition of course while they are in prison and they may be in prison we found out uh, from our sort of empirical work that you could be in prison for at least 50 days until the trial court grants you bail and 200 days until the high court grants you bail um and all this sometimes for a very innocuous social media post that you did not even know you were clicking so not only have you have you been in prison for at least 3 months or 4 months or 1 year in the meantime you've lost your job you may have been the sole breadwinner of your family uh you know you often you might have uh, sick parents or you know sick family member to look after so there are those hospitalization bills many of them come out and find that they are struggling with mental or physical trauma themselves because of the impact of the case and then there is of course this you know the fact that the case will now drag on uh because there is no sort of you know the the interest in the trial is far less than the interest in filing the fir so you will see a lot of media frenzy around the registration of an fir but by the time it comes to the stage of actually prosecuting someone for sedition you know this is this is where the slowness uh, of the system is very evident so we see a great deal of speed in the at the registration of fir stage at the arrest stage and at you know and in keeping them in prison for a few months to a year after they released on bail the case sort of slows down the interest goes away but not for the accused the accused still has to report to the police station they have to pay bail bond they have to pay their lawyer they have to therefore to to you know 
do all of this, almost everyone we spoke to has sold land, livestock, jewelry, taken on debt from money lenders at you know exorbitant interest rates. Um, in one case, there was a daily wage laborer who we could not speak to, uh, even though we went to his house to interview him, but he was out for the day. And so we couldn't speak to him. But uh, we we did find out that, you know, the fact that you are a daily wage laborer means that, you know, each time you go away for one day, you lose a day's wages. So, you know, all of this sort of adds to that feeling for the accused and their family that the process is ultimately the punishment. Um, and so also mapping the socioeconomic profile of the person accused was very important for us to find out what the impact of sedition really is on the ground. And uh, to get appropriate relief, as the court said in its interim measure, is if fresh cases are registered, these ordinary people will still have to bear the costs and the trauma of finding a lawyer, paying that lawyer, and seeking that appropriate relief. Exactly. I mean, again, the burden is on the accused to go to court and say, look, an FIR was filed against me. You know, Why should it be the burden on the accused to do that? And as you said, how many people can afford that lawyer? You know, if you're filing sedition cases against people from, you know, with, with barely any income to survive, how do you expect them to find a lawyer to challenge these sorts of, uh, you know, to challenge an FIR file against them, let alone bail, let alone having to fight for bail. So, you know, I, I think the, you know, the order of the court and perhaps in hindsight, it might occur to, to many of us um, is very distant from the realities of how sedition actually plays out. It ignores so much of what's going on uh, that that we sort of now discovered as well, uh, you know, through our research at Article 14. So many of these realities are ignored. How impossible and complicated it is actually to to ensure that the that that particular police officer in that thana in that you know village or that district in Uttar Pradesh is you know has to apply their mind to whether or not uh, this was a seditious case so ultimately it is in the hands of the police it is in the in, in the hands of the executive to ensure this doesn't happen but i think only time will tell us whether they abide by that expectation that's been placed on them by the court now to circle back to what happened at the Supreme Court, I, I'd just like to know your opinion on whether you think there is any added benefit to the Supreme Court striking down the law instead of the central government reconsidering it and then starting to put in, put in motion um, a process to repeal the law through the legislature or dilute the law through guidelines. Yes, I mean, you know, fundamentally the normative considerations are going to be very different. Uh, you know, judicial considerations to strike down a law versus the executive reconsidering or reviewing a particular law, I think, stand on normatively different grounds. And unfortunately, we, well, we will know perhaps in July, but, you know, we, 
we don't have a sense now of whether this will be a Supreme Court-led decision to review the law or whether this will ultimately be an executive-led decision. Um, as far as the Supreme Court uh, striking down the law or you know, Supreme Court hearing arguments, certainly because the arguments put forth by eight petitioners stand on very solid constitutional grounds. You know, each of the petitioners has relied on a different set of normative considerations. And this is the job of the court to hear both sides uh, of the argument and then decide whether it makes sense to retain or you know, strike down sedition. So it would have been good or perhaps it, it will be good for us, for the court to judicially review this law as opposed to now the government saying that they will reconsider the law. Again, the affidavit of the government certainly doesn't inspire much confidence uh, for me personally, because as I said, we don't, we don't know what this reconsideration means. Are you going to hold public consultations? Are you going to invite papers? Are you going to solicit views? How long are you going to take? You know, um, is it one year? Is it two years? Is it 10? We don't know. Also, the fact that in the affidavit, uh, the normative consideration seems to be to shed colonial baggage in light of the prime minister who believes that we are celebrating Azadi Kamrit Mahotsav. One would have hoped that there are, uh, you know, other more solid grounds that the government could have invoked to say that it's time to get rid of sedition, if at all they believe that we need to get rid of sedition. So, so, you know, to answer your question, fundamentally, yes, both institutions will decide it within a specific normative framework. And between the two, I would certainly prefer the Supreme Court deliberate than the executive deliberate. Because at the Supreme Court, you, you know, the petitioners and the respondents will be forced to argue uh, their case on established constitutional principles, on the basis of academic research, um, empirical evidence. Um, whereas with the executive, um, we just don't know what that looks like. It, it's the, the affidavit was opaque at best. Right. And I was wondering if sedition were to go, we still have provisions under the UAPA, uh, even in the IPC, offenses against public tranquility, etc., which are equally vague, equally overbroad, and UAPA perhaps more draconian. What do you think would be the effect of sedition being struck down or being repealed on these laws? So, you know, one is that, of course, if sedition is struck down by the court, or by parliament, um, if the reasons for striking it down uh, are are solid and you know um, you know again based on constitutional considerations, it's certainly precedent. You know, it is precedent for upholding fundamental rights and constitutional values. However, as you know, you're right that. The fact that we continue to have other laws, and in fact, even in the sedition cases that we've documented, it's not only 124A that's invoked in the FIR. You know, it is typically invoked with other offenses in the IPC. So 153A, 295A, 153B, 5052, UAPA, the IT Act, 
you know, uh, the Prevention of Damage to Public Property Act. I mean, there are so many laws that are invoked along with sedition. Now, so sedition being being repealed, while that is certainly good pre- precedent, uh, would not mean that these cases against those particular accused would would be dropped automatically because the other charges would stand, the other charges would hold. And so the case against them could very well proceed. And especially with laws like UAPA, which are far more draconian, far more restrictive, more dangerous in its application. Uh, You could be in prison far longer under UAPA. Yes, it's a matter to be concerned about and that we shouldn't quite celebrate the fact uh, that you know we have an interim order now. I mean, we still have a long way to go uh, before we even know what's going to happen with sedition. But even if sedition is struck down, I don't think our worries are far from over. There are other laws, uh, as you said, equally vague. For example, offending the sentiments of a community, uh, you know, spreading malicious rumors, um, outraging sentiments. All of these employ the same sort of broad vague, unclear definition, which continues to make it easy to be, you know, for for anyone really to be arrested for a retweet, um, liking, you know, a photo, uploading a WhatsApp status, all of which we've seen in sedition anyway. Um, But of course, uh, that being said, Sedition going away also means, very importantly, that the tag of being a traitor, the idea that you can have traitors in a democracy also goes away. So, you know, we we should certainly uh, be cognizant of that ideal. And would you say to curb the misuse of these other provisions or at least have strict standards on the basis of which they are used? It's so much more important for the court to strike it down by reiterating and emphasizing constitutional standards. Is it more important for the court to do it or is it more important for parliament to do it? I think is really a question of how that process, you know, what sort of views are placed uh, before either of those institutions. Because these are the two institutions that can that can strike down sedition, that can set it aside or repeal it. So, you know, I I wouldn't I I wouldn't commit to uh, you know should the court do it or should Parliament do it because both are deliberative processes, both have to solicit views, both have to be debated and argued. Uh, that is, you know, both institutions require that deliberation and argument, uh, placing you know research uh, before uh, before it. So, you know it. it Either institution doing it on on you know any of these constitutional grounds, any of the sort of things we've discussed, keeping in mind that there are certain ground realities, there is there's a certain political climate we live in that makes it hard to ignore, uh, you know, hard to ignore how sedition cases are uh, operationalized. So how sedition is filed against people. So I think either institution could take responsibility for this and say that, look, there's no place for this law in our democracy. And yes, it's important. The grounds on which they decide to repeal it is certainly important, but it's hard to predict, right, what that will be. Um, for, for, you know, for those of us who 
who uh, are are invested in the issue i think all we can do is is put out uh, you know put this out in an intellectually rigorous way to demonstrate why sedition has no place here today and you know you can only hope that either the court or parliament listens to all of these views and then decides what they're going to do with it but it's again something we'd have to i suppose wait and see what this process looks like on what grounds these deliberations are made the kinds of arguments that are placed before the court or before parliament uh, you know it's also interesting the timing of the next hearing which is uh, before the court which is the third week of july is also on the time of the monsoon session of parliament so so i don't know we'll we'll have to see really what happens then um it also you know we also have to be cognizant of the fact that the chief justice of india is retiring in august so it seems unlikely certainly to me uh that there might be a referral to a larger bench in that time frame so i think you know this is sort of reading the tea leaves as best as you can uh, uh given how events have transpired but at the moment i would say uh sadly i i am not particularly encouraged by what transpired in court in the last week thank you so much lobhiti for such a wonderful overview of the events of the past week and for sharing your thoughts with us and for also giving us a glimpse into the everyday workings of sedition i think we all need to remember that when we are thinking about the challenge and what should happen to this law thank you so much for having me this was wonderful thank you